You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. If you listen to several podcasts, I bet you've heard them talk about surveys, and you're about to hear about it again. It would be a huge benefit to the podcast if you could head over to surveymonkey.com slash r slash airwave, or just click the link in the episode show notes. There will be a set of questions about who you are, how you listen, what you like about the podcast, which is hopefully a lot. It should not take you longer than 10 minutes. This is important for the show as a way to attract advertisers. It will also help me make better choices about the podcast structure and content in the future. So if you took your time to fill out the survey, you would have my personal thanks. Again, that link is surveymonkey.com slash r slash airwave, or it's just in the show notes. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Second World War, Episode 130, The September Campaign Part 22, The Long War Ahead. This is the final episode of the podcast's series on the September campaign. One of the things that is important to keep in mind is that while this podcast and most accounts of the Second World War would move away from Poland at this point in the narrative, you know, thinking October 1939, for the people in Poland, the campaign of September 1939 was just the very beginning of years of occupation. This occupation by both the Germans in the West and the Soviets in the East would see new atrocities and new exploitations. In the German-occupied territories, these exploitations would primarily be in the form of economic exploitation as resources were exported from Poland to fuel the German war economy. This included the conscription of hundreds of thousands of Poles to work in German factories and in German agriculture. This episode will have two primary sections to cover some of these events. The first will be around how the occupation of Poland was organized to facilitate this exploitation, while the second section will discuss how Polish citizens and soldiers continued to contribute to the fight against Germany, both within Poland and in Western Europe. From the beginning of the conversations between Germany and the Soviet Union in 1939, conversations that led to the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, the exact fate of Poland after it had been defeated in war was left slightly ambiguous. There were many details about Polish territory to finalize, and there was even the idea of maybe a small rump state of independent sort of Polish territory that was at least a possibility that was discussed. To try and iron out some of these details, another round of discussions would begin on September 27th, when, once again, German Foreign Minister Ribbentrop would arrive in Moscow. 
The goal of this trip was to finalize any remaining details between the two nations around the status of their new territories in Poland. During the meeting that followed, one of the areas of, of perfect agreement between the two nations was the idea that the Polish rump state would be abandoned. Stalin believed that any remaining area of independent Polish territory would simply be a source of friction and would cause instability in the region. The other major topic that Ribbentrop wanted to discuss was the exact placement of the border between the German and Soviet territories. During early conversations, the border was to be drawn to the west of the River Bug, uh, but Ribbentrop wanted it to be moved to the river itself. The reasoning was that Germany wanted to be able to exploit some forest to the west of the river, as well as the oil fields in Galicia. Stalin would agree to move the border in central Poland to the river bug, but he did not want to hand over the territory of Galicia. Instead, he proposed that the Soviet Union gain control of that region with an agreement signed that half of the oil that it produced would be sold to Germany, or could be exchanged for coal. This was overall still a good deal for Germany, as Germany had the coal to exchange if it was required. Stalin also wanted the Germans to agree that Lithuania was within the Soviet sphere of influence, which was in exchange for the movement of the border to the River Bug. Given the future events in the region, specifically the Soviet occupation of Lithuania just a few months later, it's easy to see why Stalin would agree to trade a bit of territory west of the Bug for Lithuania. The Soviets would in fact move quickly to take advantage of their position in Lithuania, forcing the Lithuanian government to sign a treaty of mutual assistance in October 1939, including the positioning of 20,000 Red Army soldiers in the country itself. The nation would then be annexed by the Soviet Union during the spring of 1940. But I'm getting a bit ahead of things. All of the proposals that were discussed on September 27th and counter-proposals would eventually be agreed to. And the theatrical moment of pulling out a big map of Poland and physically drawing a line on the map would be completed. With this agreement, Poland was, yet again, partitioned between its larger neighbors. Germany would receive roughly 200,000 square kilometers and 20 million people. The Soviets 190,000 square kilometers and 12 million. The new German territories would be divided into two areas— in the northwest would be territories that would be directly incorporated into Germany. This included almost all of the territory that had been taken from Germany after the First World War. This included the territories of far western Poland, which basically just pushed the German eastern border further east. This area was divided into two new districts of Germany, and in both there would be an immediate effort to begin forcing all ethnic Poles out of all of the areas now included in Germany. The goal was to eventually make these areas populated with exclusively ethnic Germans. This would eventually require almost 9 million Poles to be forced out of the area, which in September 1939 was populated by less than a million Germans. Most of these Poles would be forcibly relocated to the newly created general government area. This territory was the remaining areas under German occupation, which were not directly annexed into Germany itself. This territory initially contained most of central and southern Poland, and around 11 million people. This territory was put under the control of a longtime Nazi party member, going all the way back to the Beer Hall Push in 1923, by the name of Hans Frank. The general government would be put in place on October 25th, which marked the end of military control of these areas, and after that, Frank would begin his reign of brutality. There were two primary tasks given to the general government— 
ensure that there would be no further resistance from the people of Poland, and then absolute economic exploitation. To achieve the first goal, immediate new laws were put in place, which made execution the punishment for even minor crimes. And then to achieve both goals, there was a food rationing system put in place, which placed every non-German in the general government area essentially on the path to starvation. This included the millions of people that were forced to move from the German territories into the general government-controlled territories of Poland. Frank believed that this would keep the Poles in line and under the control of the Germans, while also allowing for as many resources, especially food, as possible to be exported to Germany. To summarize the objectives of Frank in his own words, quote, Poland should be treated like a colony where the Poles become the slaves of the greater German Reich, end quote. It was a regime created to practice brutality, and it would. It's easy to forget how important the economic exploitation of these areas or these occupied territories would be for the German economy. The territories of Eastern Europe, especially those occupied early in the war, and therefore occupied for the longest period, would see the most exploitation. The first phase of this exploitation was usually the simplest. Basically, as many resources as possible were exported from the occupied territory and sent back to Germany. For the occupied territories of Poland, this meant thousands of tons of every kind of resource you can imagine. Fabric, precious metals, paper, rubber, chemicals. Basically, anything of value that could be used and could be put on a train was taken. In some areas, industrial resources would be taken over by German occupiers, while in others, those industrial resources like factories would be broken down and moved elsewhere where it would be more advantageous for the German war effort. This is one of the primary ways that the German occupation of Poland, and really all of Eastern Europe, differed from the German occupation of other areas of Europe, like in Western Europe. In, for example, France, the general actions of the Germans were to take advantage of local manufacturing capabilities by letting those manufacturing capabilities continue to be under local control. Uh, the same businesses might continue owning the factories, the same workers might continue working in the factories, they were just exporting everything they made to Germany. In Eastern Europe, German leaders would take control completely, and in many cases, manufacturing capabilities were relocated to reduce the need to transport raw material into occupied territories. So all of the um, machines of a factory may be moved from Poland to somewhere in Germany where it would be rebuilt and then continue producing whatever it was producing in Poland. Along with these efforts to simply extract goods from Poland, there would be a major effort to utilize Poles as labor for the German economy. Even before the war, there were hundreds of thousands of Poles that would be used as labor in Germany, particularly in the agricultural areas of eastern Germany. They were wage laborers who would go to Germany, work in the fields, and then go home when the season was over. This was drastically increased during the early years of the war, and in the earliest days of occupation in October 1939, the conscription of Polish laborers would begin, with 1.7 million eventually being forced to work in Germany. This made up about half of all the foreign laborers in Germany during the war. These workers were critical in the years that followed, as a larger and larger number of Germans were needed for military duty. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust 
into a drive that's all your own? With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Along with the economic exploitation of Poland, one of the most consistent features of the German occupation would be violence. One example of this violence would be that which was suffered by the Polish prisoners of the war. Over the course of the Polish campaign, hundreds of thousands of Polish soldiers would surrender to the German military. In some of the larger surrender events, like those of Modlin or Warsaw, promises were made that the enlisted men who surrendered would quickly be released from captivity and allowed to return to their normal lives. This did, in some cases, happen, but for over 650,000 Polish prisoners of war, their captivity would continue throughout the winter. First, they were held in poorly provisioned prisoner-of-war camps before many of them were transferred into Germany to act as laborers in the German war industry. During this period of captivities, the, the Germans would not even allow them to receive aid from the Red Cross. Jewish prisoners were treated even more harshly, with 25,000 of them dying just in those first few months of their captivity. We don't even really know how many of these prisoners would die over the following years due to lack of accurate records. The Germans justified this treatment because they claimed that Polish prisoners were not prisoners of war, using the logic that Poland no longer existed, so there was no war that they could be prisoners of. In Poland, there was no shortage of violence against civilians. There are simply too many atrocities to mention in this regard, which would continue basically for the rest of the war. To give a few examples of this violence, in the small town of Turek, northwest of Wuj, a, a German SS officer would force all the Jews who lived in the town to crawl through the streets towards the synagogue. Along the entire route, they would be whipped. When they arrived at the synagogue, they were forced to remove their pants before the whipping continued. There were countless examples of synagogues being burned to the ground, sometimes with the Jewish members of the community locked inside. Near Warsaw, there would be a series of executions after two German soldiers were killed in a cafe. Soldiers and police would roam the streets of the town, rounding up most of the inhabitants and even stopping a train that was moving through the town loaded with Polish civilians. All of these would be rounded up, and over 100 of them would be executed while the rest were forced to dig their graves. The owner of the cafe was publicly hanged, with his body continuing to be displayed as a warning. These are not isolated incidents. They were constantly happening all over Poland during the period of occupation. We know about many of them, but there are probably some events that have been lost to history. The key point to understand, though, is that there was a constant threat of violence and a consistent campaign of repression. 
While all of those events were happening in the German-occupied areas of Poland, in the zone of Soviet control in eastern Poland, there were 12 million people, and in these regions, some similar activities would occur. All of these areas were directly integrated into the Soviet Union, with no puppet government like was created for the general government area under German control. One of the first actions that would be taken by the Soviet occupiers would be the deportation of what were termed anti-Soviet elements. The exact groups of people that were deported generally to Siberia or to Central Asia varied a bit by region and time period, but the Soviets took the same general view of these new areas that they had taken in Ukraine during the 1930s. Individuals who were community leaders, landowners, business owners, or any that resisted the implementation of Soviet systems and laws were deported. In the period between the start of the occupation and Operation Barbarossa in June 1941, around 650,000 individuals would be deported for these reasons. During this time, somewhere around 65,000 individuals were also executed. All of this was done with the end goal of preventing any kind of real resistance within the Soviet-controlled areas of Poland, and it was largely successful. The ruthless nature of the NKVD prevented Polish resistance from really gaining any kind of foothold within the Soviet zone. Many of the prisoners of war that were taken into Soviet captivity, which was around 250,000, would be sent to labor camps throughout the Soviet Union. There were also several instances of prisoners of war being executed uh, during this time by the Soviets, most famously at the Katyn Forest. The events in the Katyn Forest were heavily debated for about 50 years after they happened. This was due to the consistent denials made by the Soviet Union uh, that they had not killed about 4,400 Polish officers in the forest in April 1940. This half-century of denial would actually end in 1990, when the new Russian government admitted that the events in the Katyn Forest really did happen, and they were ordered for Moscow. It would end up being one of those events that would have a very confusing life during and after the war, almost entirely due to the drastic changes in the relationship between the Western nations and the Soviet Union during and after the conflict. During the war, the Western Allies were unaware of the exact nature of the secret protocol that had seen Poland partitioned between Germany and the Soviet Union. And even when they did discover this information, which was in 1945, when a copy of the agreement was found in Germany, the role of the Soviets in Eastern Europe, both in Poland and elsewhere, was minimized. Then, as the, the Cold War started and grew more intense, the Soviet Union would deny many of the actions that would later be proven to be true, and there were a general lack of sources available to Western nations to make any real concrete claims. While formal resistance from the Polish government and military had ended in October 1939, Poland would continue to fight against Germany until the end of the war. In Poland, this would take the form of the Polish resistance, which would start immediately after the end of organized resistance. This included the service for victory in Poland, which would be founded in Warsaw before it surrendered to the Germans. It was made up of both military personnel and civilians. In November 1939, it would change its name to the Union for Armed Struggle before changing its name once again in early 1942, this time to the Home Army. By the time that it transformed into the Home Army, it would count about 100,000 personnel in some form or another. Along with the resistance within Poland itself, thousands of Polish individuals would join the armies of Britain and France to continue the fight against Nazi Germany. 
This was possible due to a number of different avenues. Uh, some Polish sailors and soldiers were sent abroad at the start of the war. For example, multiple Polish destroyers would make their way to Britain. Others would exit Poland through neutral nations like Romania, where they would slowly make their way to Western Europe. All of these efforts resulted in the creation of the Polish Army in Exile, under the leadership of General Sikorski. The support of this army and the hopes for their eventual victory was high, almost to the point that it reduced the performance of the Polish army during the September campaign because the goal was to just hold out as long as possible before getting as many resources out of Poland as possible. These forces would then take part in many of the war's campaigns. There would be Polish units that would fight in the Norwegian campaign. They would do their best during the invasion of France. Polish airmen would patrol the skies of Britain during the Blitz. Polish armored units would fight their way up through Italy. Polish paratroopers would participate in Market Garden. And these are just a few of the examples of the sacrifices that would be made by Polish soldiers during the war. But right from the beginning, there was always a concern among Polish leaders. A concern that they would be sidelined as the war grew in scope, and that their early battles of September 1939 and their early sacrifices would be forgotten. To try and prevent this, Sikorsky would say, quote, Of particular importance to us is the question of participation in the Supreme War Council and the Executive War Council. Our absence from these relegates us to the background and threatens our most vital interests. Generally, the army and strategy are aspects of politics. At this moment, the outcome of our cause will depend primarily on our political work. End quote. Sikorsky's fears were well-founded. And when the Polish representative to the Executive War Council attended a meeting in March 1940, he was told that he would only be necessary when the matters being discussed were directly related to Poland, but then he was never notified when such a topic would be discussed. Less than six months after the invasion of Poland had started, Poland was already sidelined. This kind of treatment would only continue, especially after the entry of the Soviet Union into the war after Operation Barbarossa. At that point, the future of Poland became a problem. The Soviet leaders in Moscow and the Polish government in exile had fundamentally different and wholly incompatible views of what the future of Poland should look like. This difference in opinion would climax at the Tehran Conference in November 1943, when the future fate of Poland would be decided by a group of international leaders, and there would not be a single Polish leader present to make their voice heard. I cannot help but see the parallels with Munich. Poland had shaped every piece of its policy in 1939 around one single goal, to not turn into the next Czechoslovakia. Polish troops were pushed up to the very border with Germany. Poland refused negotiation offers from Germany that would have resulted in Polish concessions. Poland vehemently opposed any kind of meeting of Britain, France, Germany, and Italy that did not involve a Polish leader. Poland made horrible strategic decisions around the defense of their nation, all in the pursuit of a single goal, not having the future of their nation decided at a negotiation table bereft of any Polish voice. Poland refused to have its future bargained away in the faint hope of peace in 1939. And yet, after four years of war, that's what would happen at Tehran. You can debate what happened after 1945. I'm not here to relitigate the entire history of Cold War Poland. But the simple fact is that the Poland of 1939, the Polish leaders of that nation, the Polish people who had put their trust in those leaders, were all betrayed. 
there were reasons. There were, are always reasons. Some of those reasons are even good. But it doesn't make it any less of a betrayal. And on the path to that betrayal, over the course of almost six years, between 5.6 and 5.8 million Polish citizens would die. 5.6 million people. That's 17% of the pre-war population of Poland, and that's the highest percentage of any nation. That number is four times more than France, the United States, and the United Kingdom combined. That represents 2,425 Polish citizens every single day of the 2,309 days of the Second World War in Europe. That comes out to 1.68 Polish citizens dying every single minute for six years. This series of episodes has only been the beginning of Poland's story during the Second World War, but I, I hope that it will help everyone remember their efforts, mourn their suffering, and honor their sacrifice.